Bear Island today, is, this is uh, 5.30 in the evening, is at its most perfect. It's absolutely beautiful weather, it's very mild. Uh, the sun has been shining all day. We celebrated uh, Palm Sunday Mass uh, in the village church uh, this morning. And I hope many of you managed to get a walk uh, in uh, afterwards. Um, Bear Island is a very special place, uh, both for me personally. My mother was born here, and I uh, have many relatives here. And uh, also, it's a special place for our community, because over the years, uh, we've had a number of retreats and seminars and events here. Um, and this is actually the 10th uh, year that we've had the uh, Holy Week uh, retreat. So it's a special, special anniversary for us. Um, it's a very special place as well. Uh, it's uh, in the mouth of Bantry Bay, which is in the southeast of the country, uh, on the edge of the world, really. There's nothing between us and the Atlantic. And, um, but it's a place of uh, great natural beauty. It's a small population of about 200 people with a very strong sense of connection to each other and of friendship and coming to each other's help when there is a, a problem or in need. And uh, it's also a place where the mind can relax, detach fr from even in the 10 minute uh, tri trip from the mainland. I think we feel that we can detach from the uh, anxieties and the distractions of the of the world. There are no traffic lights here, no police. Um, we're expected to act responsibly on our own. And generally, it's a place where we can feel both connected uh, to people, to the world, but also to feel this great quality of natural solitude, which is a great asset to our inner journey as well. So whether you're here in person or whether you are joining us online, uh, I hope you can feel the special sense of welcome, hospitality that the land itself here uh, gives us. So we begin Holy Week with Palm Sunday. This morning in the church we went through a little ritual which the altar servers find great fun which is to walk with the uh, little branches representing, reminding us of the palm branches with which Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem at the beginning of the, the series of days that led, uh, of course, to his, uh, to his passion and his death. Okay. Um, so I thought we could begin uh, today by reflecting upon the stages of that journey. And really, the journey that begins today and leads us to Easter Sunday, a week from today, is a, um, a journey into the human condition. It's a story, as the Gospels tell us from different angles this year, we taking the passion account of St. Mark, but from different angles, as if the cameras were set up in different places watching the same events, um, we have a sense of all of the great human challenges and breakthroughs. This, the human condition with its highs and its lows. And today, we begin with a high, with the uh, with Passion Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday, uh, a time of success and acclamation. Uh, Jesus enters into Jerusalem as a well-known religious figure, but also a quasi-political figure, probably. And uh, he has, as it were, won the election. You know, when you see politicians uh, uh, celebrating on election on the election night, 
so it's that kind of event, that kind of uh, mood. Uh, or actors getting the Oscars, you know, and they're called up from their tables and told that they've won an Oscar. Uh, or maybe in England when uh, you get a knighthood or you win the lottery. Or when you win the reciprocated love of the most wonderful man or woman in the world. So these are, this today represents, in a sense, those times in our lives, those times in the human journey, where we get what we want. And where we find that everything is going well, it couldn't be better. How are you doing? Couldn't be better. Usually people say, not too bad, or surviving. But uh, in this stage of the human journey, we experience a flourishing. Uh, the goals of achieve are achieved, and there are no, there's no real opposition that we're facing. And this is, in simple terms, what the ego desires most. We want, we like to have this feeling of success, of achievement, of recognition, because then we can feel noble, we can feel generous, when it seems as if we've got everything we want, um, then it's easy to, to be generous and large-hearted and open-hearted to people. But that isn't the whole of the human condition. And I'd like to read you a little passage from the Kata Upanishad, which is the Upanishad in which this young boy, Nakikatas, uh, is driven to understand the true meaning of life. And he knows that, or he's led to know, that if, unless he can understand the meaning of death, he will never understand the meaning of life. And so he goes into the underworld, as it were, and uh, meets uh, the god of death, Yama, the god of death. And then engages in a, a dialogue or confrontation at times with, with death, who comes to, who respects him for his, um, the single, singleness of his purpose and uh, of his mind. And so this is what death says to Nakikatas. There is the path of joy and there is the path of pleasure. Both attract the soul. Who follows the first comes to good. Who follows pleasure does not reach the end. The two paths lie in front of man. Pondering on them, the wise person chooses the path of joy. The fool takes the path of pleasure. And you, Nikikitas, you have pondered on pleasures and you have rejected them. You have not accepted that chain of possessions wherewith men bind themselves and beneath which they sink. There is the path of wisdom and the path of ignorance. They are far apart and lead to different ends. Nikikitas, you are a follower of the path of wisdom. Many pleasures tempt you not. And he recognizes, this is death, speaking to Nikikitas, becomes his, his student, but is also an advanced student. Um, we see that death recognizes Nikikitas as one of those rare individuals who has seen the choice, the most fundamental choice there is in life. The choice between pursuing pleasure, the ego satisfactions, or pursuing joy, which we find only at the source of being. And when we meet someone in whom we find that clarity and that 
decisiveness, then we know we have found a true teacher. And this, I think, is how we are, are, are led to see Jesus in the Gospels and to see it with a very powerful clarity uh, highlighted in this last, these last few days uh, of his life <coughs> as he passes through the human condition in a very intense way. Through his arrest, his trial, and his death, he sort of condenses his teaching. We see him living the teaching. There, there are days when we read, the, read and study and think about and give talks about uh, or listen to talks about the teaching of the spiritual path. And those are important days because they prepare us for the really important days when we don't have the time, the space, or the interest even in listening to these ideas or reading them or talking about them. Uh, but those days where we are simply plunged fully into the, into the truth of the human condition and we have to live it. And whatever we have learned or understood up to that point, that's what's going to take us through. So in these days we see Jesus living his teaching and revealing his true self his, through his self-knowledge and by the way he deals with what life presents him with. This isn't the only a great story of the last days of a great man. Uh, we see it also very similar but also significantly different. Uh, in Plato's uh, little book, The Four Discourses or, or Dialogues, uh, that make up the last days of Socrates. Socrates was also put on trial uh, for uh, heresy. Jesus, of course, was accused of blasphemy. Plato was, uh, Socrates was accused of corrupting the minds of the young by, we would say, demythologizing uh, the, the, the religious symbols uh, of, of his culture. And differently from Jesus, Socrates defends himself, defends himself brilliantly in a, in a very Greek, very rational way. Uh, but he's still found uh, guilty and condemned and is condemned to commit suicide by drinking hemlock. And the night before he dies, uh, and we also see Jesus on the night before his death, on the night before Socrates dies, uh, his friends come to him and, and say, we can get you out of this, and get you out the back door, and get you out of Athens. And he refuses to leave. He says that death is welcome to the philosopher to the true lover of wisdom, because it frees us from the distractions of the world and frees us from the body. Well, the passion of, of, of Christ that we follow this week is significantly different from that. Uh, he does not defend himself during the trial, a fake trial. He is mostly silent and uh, he is, of course, executed. Uh, and he enters death with no consolation, no philosophical consolation. He goes into death as it is. It's just death, the absolute loss of everything. But he goes into it in pure faith, faith without bitterness, without vengeance, without anger. Um, even as he goes through his final experience of abandonment, why have you forsaken me, we heard in the gospel today. Uh, we, don't, we don't see him losing that faith, but carrying that faith with him through this ultimate loss uh, that is death. But like Socrates, he is true to himself. 
until the very end. And so we see, we see the truth of his teaching in the way he lives and dies. So the passion is a journey into the human condition. And it takes us through the black hole of death, which is the part of the human condition that we resist and fear most. So we accompany Jesus through these, uh, these days of Holy Week, and we accompany him as we read in the narratives uh, in the same way that the, his companions, his disciples, accompanied him uh, through the different chapters and stages, uh, the different days of, of that journey. But, and no doubt we, we follow him as imperfectly as, as they did. But we also come to understand ourselves as we accompany him as we see that his journey is shedding light on our own unique journey. That his is a unique and particular journey, unique in all history, uh, but it is also universal. It reflects the human condition itself. So we could say that we see him in ourselves because we see ourselves in him. And our faith, our faith, we see him making this journey in faith without f any consolation or false consolation. Faith is the authentic consolation. So we see him making this journey in faith and we can see that in our own faith we find a way of unknowing contemplative way that leads us also to self-knowledge and to the knowledge of the truth. So that's why I think we can find echoes of this, uh, of the meaning of Holy Week, the meaning of the Passion of Christ uh, in the world scriptures and in, in great literature as well. What we're touching, experiencing, uh, if we accompany Jesus in this way, in, this, in this, these sacred holy days, uh, we are touching the very heart of what it is to be human. So we're starting this journey with the entry into Jerusalem. Uh, we've all had, I hope, some experiences of that, some moments where everything goes well, you know, we think we've got everything we want, we're grateful, we're happy, we're generous, we feel noble, uh, but we also feel sort of blessed um, by the, the, the good fortune that has come our way, we've won. Uh, but as we see from the Kikitas, and we see, as we'll see in a minute, from the from the way Jesus takes this and moves on through it, we see that this is not the, the whole picture. It is not our ultimate goal. It isn't going to satisfy what our human condition needs. So let's come back to death for a moment, to death uh, teaching this young student. This sacred knowledge is not attained by reasoning, but it can be given by a true teacher. As your purpose is steady, you have found him. May I find another pupil like you. So here we see death is the teacher. I know that treasures pass away and that the eternal is not reached by the transient. I have thus laid the fire of sacrifice of Nikikitas, and by burning it, burning in it the transient, I have reached the eternal. So, we introduced here to an important concept of sacrifice. And in the Christian tradition, we have seen the passion of Jesus 
as in terms very often of sacrifice. But what, does, what does that mean? We'll explore that later during the week. But So there is a sacrifice being offered here, um, but it's in that sacrifice, and sacrifice was seen to involve the burning of something or the offering of something in fire very often. So what is burned away in the fire of sacrifice is the transient, what is passing away. And in that way, we break through into the now, into the eternal, into the truth. But that requires one very important aspect, <coughs> one very important response. Death continues. Before your eyes have been spread, Nikikitas, the, the fulfillment of all desire, the dominion of the world, the eternal reward of ritual, the shore where there is no fear, the greatness of fame and boundless spaces. With strength and wisdom, you have renounced them all. So that might remind us of the of, the of Lent, the beginning of Lent, where we where we um, went with Jesus into the desert for his forty days, where he was tempted by everything that death is describing in that passage: the fame and sensory satisfaction and uh, success, you know, in the world, the flesh, and the devil. So, instead of being seduced and absorbed by the glamour and the glitter of success, of those, that entry into Jerusalem, we see instead a distinction between pleasure and joy. We see the meaning of burning the transient in the fire of sacrifice. And I think the meditator, the daily meditator, would understand exactly what that means. When we sit down to meditate, it's a kind of a sacrifice. We sacrifice time. We sacrifice our immediate distractions, our immediate desires. And in, the, in that time of pure being, of pure sacrifice, if you like, we are burning away the transient in order to be able to enter or to discover or to realize where we are in the present, in the present moment. In the desert, Jesus rejects the world, the flesh and the devil, as we do in saying the mantra. Though it takes us usually a bit longer than 40 days to achieve it. So what is the wise response that minimizes the suffering involved in this renunciation, in this clarity, or in this, this uh, sacrifice? Well, there are many kinds of suffering. And we see them all, I think, in the passion of Jesus in these coming days. The Buddha focused on suffering just as the passion of Christ does, though with significantly with significant differences. But both of them recognize the centrality of suffering to the human condition. The Buddha says, all life is suffering, pain and misery caused by selfish craving, desire, and ignorance. The Sanskrit word for, that we translate as suffering is, uh, is dukkha, and it means maybe a little, something a little different from what we normally think of as suffering. It means the feeling of incompleteness, the sense that even going into Jerusalem with the crowds acclaiming you, 
even winning the election, even winning the lottery, even having the, the fullest satisfaction of your desires you could imagine, there is something incomplete. The basic sense of incompleteness, but also of the pain of ordinary life, of ordinary existence. Just the little things in daily life. Missing the ferry over to Bear Island. Uh, going over to the shop and then forgetting what you, the most important thing you were supposed to get for the kitchen. Or uh, the, the small things, not only the big tragedies, the great losses of life, but the small things as well. Now, some kinds of suffering we can avoid, and we should avoid what we can avoid. But others, we cannot avoid, and so we should learn how to deal with them. First of all, we learn by not seeking those moments of the Jerusalem, of the entry into Jerusalem. In other words, so much of life in a materialistic society is obsessed with achieving the privileges and perks of success and power. We want to have the signs of success. Uh, that's the whole force behind brand recognition, brand identity, uh, brand uh, loyalty and so on. Creating the brand image and then identifying yourself with that brand because it gives you that aura of satisfaction and success. You're carrying the most expensive handbag or you're driving, you know, the really smart, expensive car. So, the message, the first way in which we learn how to deal with the human condition as a whole is not to seek the perks or the privileges of that, that entry into Jerusalem, not even recognition. Psychologically today we, we commonly accept that we have the right to be recognized, the right to be affirmed, and that's true. We do have that right. But at a deeper level of wisdom, we also have the right to renounce that right to really not demand that we get recognized and applauded for our success or for the good that we've done. To renounce that right, just as we have, maybe you could say, the right in law and in ordinary justice uh, to, to for an eye for an eye. To react in, with violence when we have suffered violence. To answer back to retaliate, but we also have a higher or a deeper right to renounce that natural right. And we're free to do it or not to do it. The second way in which we deal with this challenge of success is not becoming attached to it when it happens and to avoid the ego's natural inclination to get hooked on the endorphins of success. Because when that happens, a habit of desire is very easily formed. And before we know where we are, our whole life, our whole mindset, is about repeating these moments of success, fulfillment, and so on. So the key word here really is detachment. And what is detachment? Detachment is stepping back. And stepping back is as important as stepping forward. on this journey of a thousand miles. Stepping back from attachment to the success, to the satisfaction that we have gained or we think we have earned, is 
involves a renunciation, involves a letting go. We take the step every time we say the mantra. We either relearn this painfully at every step we take, or we come or f uh, to the journey by covering our feet with the protection that detachment gives. In other words, we carry this detachment with us continually. And that's a better habit than the habit of becoming attached to the desire for success and fulfillment and so on. It's, a, it's a, simply a question of a, a fundamental attitude or an att attribute of our personality. This takes time to develop. It takes time to get out of one habit and into another habit. And our personality is the sign of this, of whether we have, are doing this or whether we had done it or not. What we call the personality is simply our way of being in the world. That's all. Either we are in the world with our true self, or we are in the world day by day with a false persona, seeking something that will satisfy and, 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 and stroke us uh, at all costs. So every Jerusalem moment in our lives means and requires a freeing from attachment. But also, as we'll see later, so does every moment of failure or defeat or disappointment. So detachment is not only detachment from success, but also from failure. This is something we also learn very quickly in meditation we need to learn very quickly and we we should hear from the beginning of the journey of meditation there are no we don't become attached to good meditations and we don't get disappointed by bad meditations so in that case we don't need to think about good and bad meditations at all in fact and then we're free to take the next step without bringing attachment along with us Attachment means we will bring desire and ignorance or illusion with us every step of our journey, every day of our life. So we will repeat the same pattern endlessly until the end. Same, same script, different scenes. Every day like every meditation, is in fact a new beginning, a new creation, when we bring this quality of detachment with us every step. We are able then to begin to see the world and people with the eyes of Miranda in The Tempest. If you remember The Tempest, Shakespeare's farewell play, uh, Prospero is living on this enchanted island with his uh, young daughter Miranda and she's never seen anybody, she hasn't seen the world, she's never gone off the island and she's never seen anybody else except her father and a couple of little uh, spirits. And then there's a shipwreck and uh, the island is full of, of people, good and bad, and uh, some of them good-looking, the ones that she sees. And when she first sees other people, she's 14 years old in this, uh, this, in this scene, um, she's just amazed at what she sees. She says, oh wonder, how many goodly creatures are here. How beauteous mankind is. Oh brave new world that has such people in it. So, 
that sense of wonder, that innocence, that freedom from judging, condemning, rejecting, constantly feeling that we are in competition with the world, that the world is threatening our agenda for success. This freedom simply to contemplate the natural goodness and beauty of the world. That's what comes as a fruit of detachment. What comes with it also is the ability to throw ourselves into whatever comes next, instead of complaining about life being one damn thing after another, one problem after another, one conflict after another, one struggle or competition after another. Instead of seeing life in that way, we, we feel that we can give ourselves as faithfully as we possibly can to what it is we should do next, the next step. Not pursuing some dream or illusion of total fulfillment or total success or total happiness because that does not exist in this life. Uh, but to, to find happiness, to find fulfillment in taking the next step. So the paradox is, and the passion narrative is all about paradox really, the paradox is that to enjoy and benefit from our Jerusalem moments, we must not seek them for selfish reasons, and we must let them go as quickly as they arrive. Now, detachment might sound negative to modern ears. It might sound cold, objective, separated, aloof, uncaring. But that's exactly what it does not mean. Etymologically, the word detachment is connected to the idea of untying something, setting something free, detaching, giving up attachment. The paradox has many expressions in the, in the story of Holy Week. If you think of the nails with which Jesus was attached to the cross, the paradox is, is that those nails attaching him to the cross were the very signs of his radical detachment, of his radical freedom. Simone Weil said that attachment is the great fabricator of illusion. As soon as we get caught tricked, trapped into an attachment, we begin to create illusion. And the web of illusion eventually entraps us. She says, reality can be achieved only by someone who is detached. And there is, she says, in typical Simone Weil honesty, she says, there is no detachment without pain. And she goes on that there is no pain that we can endure. In other words, well, we, we cannot endure pain without hatred or lying unless detachment is present as well. So we misunderstand or we misrepresent this universal wisdom of detachment if we think that it means we have to seek failure and we have to be miserable and we cannot enjoy our good moments and we cannot uh, uh, en enjoy flourishing those times where everything does go our way occasionally and uh, we, we can really count our blessings.
That's not the point. That is not detachment. Detachment is not rejecting or denying. It's simply not attaching ourselves to them in a way that creates illusion or desire. And the best way we can learn this wisdom, that I know anyway, is the simple regular practice of meditation as part of our lives. Meditation teaches us the real truth about detachment through practice by first-hand experience. John Main says that meditation is taking the step from self-centeredness to other-centeredness. The result is, he says, that we find our way in the world. We find where we should be. Detachment from self-centeredness liberates us for love. We are no longer dominated by the quest for survival. I think we see that in, in the Passion story. Jesus is not only not attached to his moment of 15 minutes of fame in the Jerusalem entry, uh, but we see as the story unfolds day by day this week that he is not dominated by the instinct to survive at all costs. He is ready to let go. The disengagement, Father John says, that detachment involves means that we stop using other people for our own ends. So this his insight here into detachment is, is very deep and very clear. It takes us to the very basic instinct of survival, one of the ego's strongest instincts to survive. And it takes us into the deepest meaning of our relationship with other people, which is not to use them, but to love them. He says meditation is a state of detachment wherein we are not possessed by our possessions. Our possessions may be material or psychological or economic, or even spiritual. The first step on, on the Holy Week pilgrimage then, I think is for us to reflect on this meaning of detachment. To let go. Not to reject, but to renounce. To burn away the transient in the fire of love to let go not only of what we desire, the things we desire, the images we have, but of desiring itself, of the very habit of this kind of desire. So we're going to meditate now. Maybe we'll just take a few moments to uh, remind ourselves of the way of meditation. Let me just say a few, few words about how we meditate. Uh, we'll meditate for uh, 20 minutes and um, we will uh, lead into and out of the meditation with some... Come, come in, you get, there's some seats over there. Good to see you. That's okay, you arrived at just the right, most important moment of the, of the uh, evening. <laughs> Which is our meditation time. So just take it. Just take a few moments to uh, loosen up. Maybe move your shoulders around a little bit. Tomorrow morning we have some uh, some body work, some yoga, which will. Uh, uh, not tomorrow morning. Every other morning, uh, more or less, we'll have a session for uh, becoming familiar with the body as an instrument of prayer. And meditation is a very embodied form of prayer. It's not mental prayer. In the way we teach it and understand it, it's the prayer of the heart. 
And this, but the heart is, is not disembodied. The heart is actually the center of unity of the human person, where body consciousness and spiritual consciousness or mental consciousness uh, come together and are integrated. So the way you sit is important. And the basic rule of posture is to sit with your back straight. Sit with your back straight. If you're sitting on a chair, keep your feet flat on the ground. Loosen up your shoulders and then relax them. Maybe move your neck around a little bit so that you feel balanced. You could put your hands on your lap or on your knees. And just to prepare the mind and calm the body for the meditation, you could take a few moments just to be conscious of your breathing. Just feel that continuous flow of breath that accompanies us through life. Breathing in, the accepting of the gift of life, and the breathing out, the renunciation, the letting go. So we're not using any technique or any complicated esoteric method, just, just be aware of the breathing coming in and going out, the wheel of breath. Now the purpose of meditation is to lay aside our thoughts. It's to make an, an inner journey very naturally, without force, from the mind to the heart. And we make that journey step by step by laying aside every thought or feeling or image or desire that arises. We don't fight it, we don't, re we don't reject it, we don't repress it, but we lay it aside, we let it go. And to help us to do that, we need some way of helping us to do that, we take a single word the mantra, the sacred word, and we repeat this word continually in the mind and heart during the time of the meditation. We stay with the same word, and we stay with the same word during the meditation and also every, in every meditation. So the word I would recommend is the word Maranatha. It's an ancient Christian prayer in the language that Jesus spoke. It means, come Lord. And the word is Maranatha. Four syllables, Ma-ra-na-tha. We don't think about the meaning of the word as we say it, and we don't visualize it, but we say it, we sound it, and we listen to it gently, faithfully, and attentively throughout the meditation. The detachment comes in because we will get distracted very quickly and we go off on some train of thought. Then drop the thought as soon as you realize and return to your word. That's the art of meditation, as simple, as childlike as that. So again, try and sit as still as you can the stillness of body will help to come to the stillness of, uh, of mind and heart. Relax your shoulders. Close your eyes lightly. And silently in your mind and heart begin to repeat your word. The word again I would recommend is the word Maranatha. Four syllables. Ma ra na tha. Just listen to the word as you say it gently and faithfully and keep returning to it. So we'll lead into the meditation with a little uh, Teze music uh, just for uh, half a minute or so.
So we'll end <coughs> with these words from the uh, letter to the Romans, where he speaks about the sacrifice offered by mind and heart, and the power of this experience to transform us. My friends, I beg you by God's mercy to offer your very selves to him, the worship offered by mind and heart. Adapt yourselves no longer to the pattern of this present world, but let your minds be remade and your whole nature thus transformed. And then you will be able to discern the will of God and to know what is good, acceptable, and perfect. <clears throat>